Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Drell Mason, better known as Jay Mace, and another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where you get the inside track on the happenings in the music industry from those who lived it, and we also celebrate them, give them their flowers. Right now with me, I have Mr. Alex Chances, music educator, musician, and just a jack of all trades. Alex, thank you for taking the time out to do this interview with me. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so how are you holding up with everything because of COVID? I'm doing okay. A lot of my friends who are working just as musicians are really having a hard time. But because my musical world is split between teaching and performing, I'm doing okay. Yeah, because I was talking with various people who I've had a chance to interview on the podcast, and they were saying how with COVID, it pretty much kind of limited their income as far as DJing or being able to go out on the road. So trying to figure out a way to supplement the money is difficult right now. So how did you fall in love with music and what was your first instrument? Well, my first instrument was recorder when I was five years old. And I always loved music. I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens. It was an 80% black neighborhood. There was a lot of music in that neighborhood. A lot of great musicians came out of that neighborhood. Marcus Miller, Steve Jordan, Charlie Drayton, the Drayton Brothers. It was a great great place to grow up and then before middle school uh, before seventh grade we moved out to a mostly white suburb and I, I didn't fit in so well for a little while but that's where i got my musical start okay now is anyone else in your family musically inclined not so much my parents loved music and my mom and my dad had very different tastes in music my dad loved jazz singers but he didn't love jazz like he loved ella fitzgerald and joe williams but he would listen to their pop stuff not their real jazz Stuff. And then my mom was more into, you know, straight up jazz. So as far as your musical skills is concerned, you played primarily by ear or did you read music or a combination of both, playing by ear and learning how to read? Both. I was very lucky. I did get to study piano. I ended up going to music school and getting a degree in jazz studies from Indiana University. And I studied with David Baker, who was an incredible jazz educator. So I really got to learn a lot from him. So when you went over to Indiana for your degree, did you have to audition to get into the school of music? Yes, but because it was the jazz program, it was a very light audition. Like, I, I was never really a heavy-duty classical player. Though I did study, I was never competition level as a classical player. So the requirements for getting into the jazz program were very relaxed. They didn't expect high school age students to really have much of a jazz, you know, basis at that point. Now it's a little tougher. Yeah, because I had friends that went to the University of North Carolina in Greensboro, where I got my undergraduate degree for their school of music. They had to audition in order to get in, and they were saying that the process was very strenuous. And from my freshman year to sophomore year, we had a guest adjunct professor who was very well known, and the man I'm referring to is Mr. Fred Wesley from the JD. Yeah. Well, you know, at the time that I went to music school, there were three jazz departments in the whole country. There was North Texas. There was Miami. Miami Jazz Department was run by Will Lee, the bass player's father, and Indiana University. Now, almost all music schools have a jazz department because there's so many requests for it, and it's so desired. People want to know how to play. But back then, it didn't really exist so much. Yeah, I didn't really know Indiana was known for their jazz program because, of course, me being a sports fan, the only thing I know that Indiana University is known for is the basketball teams with Coach Knight. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a little wacky. Yeah, only team to still go undefeated, but although his coaching practices would be outdated now, but he put out some good Indiana teams, ran a clean program. Now, did you do marching band while you were in high school? I did, and that was horrible because I was the physically biggest sax player that 
gave me the baritone sax. I hated it. The thing was huge and awful to marshal it. So I begged my parents, please get me an alto. And once they got me an alto sax, they had to move me from baritone to alto. So that was uh, a help. Right. And was most of the performances in your band choral style or was it kind of show style? For those of you that don't know what choral style and show style is, show style is pretty much where it is like a musical performance where you got dance numbers and you're forming more popular tunes and choral styles pretty much where you still have your intricate formations like show style, but your performance pieces would kind of be more like standard. So I was very lucky in high school. The band director in high school was a brilliant conductor, and all he cared about was our classical concert. He really didn't care about marching band, and the gym coaches hated us because we put almost no time into our marching band. But in All-State Band New York, we won the competition three years in a row and got perfect scores from every judge and standing ovations. We were doing very complex classical stuff. And to this date, I've worked under a lot of conductors, but the conductor that was my high school band teacher was the most skilled conductor I've ever worked on. And by this time when you were in high school, was stage band a thing or that not came to fruition yet? There was a stage band. It was run by a different teacher. And both of those teachers, I'm still in touch with them today. We did a good assortment of stuff. I mean, I got to play in high school. I got to play some of the Basie book and the Glenn Miller book and a lot of those, you know, the big bands and learn some of that repertoire. Right. Have you seen the documentary Thunder Soul or heard of the documentary Thunder Soul? No. Tell me about it. All right, Thunder Soul is a documentary that was produced by Jamie Foxx. It was telling of the story of Cashmere High School's stage band from the 70s out of Houston, Texas, and their conductor, Conrad Prop Taylor, how he took high school kids from inner city Houston, made them into a stage band, and they were sweeping competition left and right. They even got a chance to go play in Europe, and they put out albums, and some of the members ended up reuniting over 40 years later to do a special performance for him and for the community, telling him thank you for teaching us this and having us show that there's a way out of Houston into a better life. It's a good documentary to check out if you have. I will check it out. You know, I've been teaching now 18 years. When I got the job teaching, I was touring with Anita Baker and the backlash from September 11th had hit New York and there was very little work, and which is why I took the teaching job. And over the course of that time, I've had a number of students come back to me that have turned music into their careers and it feels so good for them to come back and say, you really set me in this direction, you know, like you changed my life. And that has a lot of meaning to me. Right. That's the impact of an educator. I was an educator myself for three years, so I understand the impact that an educator can make. And it's a shame how the art are not really funded like it was in prior decades, you know, budgets being cut. So what are your thoughts about the arts not being fully supported like it once was? It's a shame, and it has consequence in our society. I mean, I know you spoke with my friend Mark. Mark Mason, and Mark and I have talked about how from the time when he was in school and when I was in school, every school had instruments for all the kids, and there were band and orchestra programs at all the New York City schools, and all of that is withered away because of funding. As a country, we aren't deciding to really look at art and music as vital. Right, and I think the arts is vital for kids because a lot of kids, if they're in an extracurricular activity that they love, they're going to have that extra incentive to want to stay out of trouble and keep their grades up. Well, yes, and also, the other thing is, from learning how to play something, 
you get instant feedback. You work on something, you get better at it. So you start to learn about discipline, not through being told you have to be disciplined, but through succeeding at being disciplined. Yeah, so kids learn at an early age, age, you want to be good at something, you got to practice, 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 practice. Now, when you got out of Indiana with your degree, did you immediately go and do session work, or did you have a day job and do session work on the side until the session work was enough to where I could focus on that whole time? When I got back from Indiana, I moved back with my parents and started trying to gig. For the first couple of years, I've made very little money. I was just networking in the New York area, and it took a number of years until I knew the right people and started getting gigs with bigger artists. Built myself enough of a reputation that I got to work with name artists instead of local artists. Now, when you work with big-time artists, is it primarily where you have to audition for them, or is it primarily referral? For me, it's been referral. I mean, I've had a couple of auditions, but most of the time it's been like where somebody had the gig already and they were like, why don't you call Alec? My friend Bernie Davis also connected me to a lot of work. He was kind of a few years ahead of me in terms of playing in the New York and smooth jazz scene and R&B scene. So Bernie got me a bunch of gigs like with Najee and Diane Reeves and Evelyn Champagne King. He hooked me up with different things that were valuable. I hooked over the years. I hooked him up too. He also brought me in to work with Valerie Simpson and Ashford and Simpson. Right. So once again, kids, it's about who you know and don't burn bridges because you do something nice with somebody, the favor will be returned to you. Yes, that's true. And also approaching things professionally. From, like, every time I sat down to play, it didn't matter if it was a little, tiny, cheap wedding or if it was a big, giant concert for 55,000 people. I approached it exactly the same, with the most professionalism and the most care that I could put into it. Right. Definitely have to go all in all the time, and that's what I respected the most about Prince, because Prince was all music all the time, and Jim Jam Terry Lewis told this story of how they were rehearsing 777-9311, and Prince was looking at them and saying, why aren't you doing this with this hand? And he was pretty much challenging them, do more, be bigger than the record. Everything has to be different and new every night. And that's where you see how the time, pretty much every spinoff act that he came in touch with was so tight performance-wise because he drove it into perfection, perfection, perfection. In around, I'm thinking 1989, my roommate from college had bought a Fairlight. At that point in time, there were two large digital systems. There was Synclavier and Fairlight. Synclavier was, came out of New England and Fairlight came out of Australia. Todd bought a Fairlight, which was what Prince was using, and Todd toured with Prince for a year as Prince's combination keyboard roadie and keyboard tech. When Todd left Prince, he offered me that job. And it would have been in the studio with Prince running his synthesizers for him. And I turned it down because it was a, basically a glorified roadie job. But Todd spent a year with Prince and he said that Prince would finish a concert and look at the band and say, you must be tired. Go take a nap for an hour and meet me in the studio at one. And he would record every night. Todd said Prince must have had 13 or 14 albums worth of material that nobody will ever hear just sitting in the vault. Yeah, because 
I know Susan Rogers, his former engineer, did an interview on Rare Music Academy. She was saying how she always had that mindset when engineering his stuff, always keep the reels rolling because you never know with him when the inspiration is going to strike. Yeah, well, he was a very imaginative guy. I mean, a lot of people, when you listen to their second album, they start running out of ideas. Like, they have a limited number of bag, uh, tricks in their bag, and their first album is full of imagination. And then when they get to their second album and the pressure is on for them to do it in a certain amount of time, they don't have that whole lifetime of thinking about what they're going to do. they got to do it on demand and don't have that creativity. The Prince did. He had that constant renewal. Like, if you listen across all his albums, there's so many different styles that he covers, and not everybody has that capability. Because mm, I know when he signed the Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers originally wanted Maurice Wright from Earth, Wind & Fire to produce the For You album, but he was like, no, I'm self-contained. And the way that he was able to have all of the theater acts, such as The Time, Bandy Dick, Apollonia Dick, create material for them and other outside artists, just shows that he was just pouring out with creativity, and he just the extra outlet to get it out. Yeah, he was possessed with being creative. Like, he wasn't, he didn't rest. Like Todd said, he barely slept, that he worked all the time. I can't imagine Maurice White and Prince together. I got to musically direct Alvin Ailey's tribute to Earth, Wind, and Fire. And it was, what an honor that was. And what an exciting thing that was. We had to exactly copy Earth, Wind, and Fire's songs for the dancers to dance to. And after that, uh, there was a Broadway show that only lived for a short while that was an Earth, Wind, and Fire show. It didn't turn out to be very successful, but when they auditioned the musicians for the pit band in that show, they used a combination of Broadway guys and New York R&B guys. So because Maurice had heard of us from doing the Alvin Ailey thing, Maurice came and auditioned us. Now, just try and imagine what this feels like. Our band in a rehearsal studio with Maurice sitting there, listening to us play Earth, Wind & Fire, and him singing along and clapping his hands and smiling at us and then hanging out afterwards. Even though it was a short, you know, couple of hours, it was such an exciting couple of hours for all of us in the band. Man, I bet. And what was your thoughts as a musician with the rise of digital instruments like the Moog synthesizer, the 808s, the 909s, where everything was becoming more digital and electronic, and real musicianship was getting pushed out because labels were that, hey, we can have these machines do the same work as a full band in a recorded session at maybe half the price. Well, there's a lot I can say about that. First thing is, I love synthesizers. I even met Robert Moog, and I talked to his daughter online. They have a Moog Institute that also is doing education with little kids about sound and synthesizers that's phenomenal. I think they're in, in Georgia. They're somewhere down south. But there's a consequence to the technology becoming easier to make music with. And uh, what's happened is we've lost some of the expertise and skill, as I see it. Now, there's a lot of people who are very musical making music, and they have musical intuition and musical ideas, but not as many people that have that in the mainstream of music that people hear on the radio that have that lifetime of studying music. So if you go back a 100 years, if you wanted to hear music, you either had to make it or go to somebody who was making it. And then, actually, 1903 was the first synthesizer. And the guy's idea was a guy named Thaddeus Cahill. His idea was to sell a subscription to a music service that ran wires into your house, just like cable TV, and that he would play music on a keyboard and people could buy a subscription to it. And that first synthesizer that he built took 
pick up 36 boxcar, train boxcars. It was gigantic. Now something like that fits in a little time. I mean, your phone is more powerful than that. But from then to now, the technology has advanced. Now, the 808 was big in hip-hop. The 909 was big in club. So in the 90s, when I started doing a lot of club records with uh, DJs, I was doing, like, house records with David Morales and Frankie Knuckles, and all the drums were based on 909. Right, and that is in a skill in itself, because I think about hip-hop and the early productions that came out with Marley Mall, Teddy Riley, and a lot of the early producers. They were making those records in home studios, and due to the technological limitations, they had to figure out ways to chop up samples inside the samplers in order to get more sampling time, use different things to get acoustics. I think Teddy Riley said in an interview that when he was recording Guy's David album and then Bobby for my prerogative, that he used the bathroom as his recording studio. I got to work with Teddy. We did a concert singer named Sylvia Strickland, who never really became famous or anything. But Teddy played so well. He was maybe 19 at that age, and I was a bunch of years older than him. He scared the heck out of me. He, he came in. I mean, his playing was amazing. What a talented guy. In my mind, he deserves every bit of, of uh, success he got. Yes, he does. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and his era was the era that I grew up in, because I think about R&B before the Make It Last Forever album. It was very adult, reminiscent of Motown, Dax, very upwardly mobile, your Luthers, your Anitas, your Freddie Jackson. Then when Teddy came out with our Warner for Keith Sweat and Guy's album, R&B, significantly changed. Yes, a couple things I want to say about that. You named a bunch of artists I got to work with. I was very happy to work with. But this perspective that I think is important to kind of get, up until when DJs started being hired by clubs, which is the late 70s, early 80s, up until that time, people had experience with live music. The artists that grew out of that era from Motown until that point, until the end of the 70s. They didn't start out as stars. They started out singing in clubs. And so before they became a star, their experience included singing hundreds of songs, singing in front of an audience and knowing what works and what doesn't work. And once the technology changed, once clubs started hiring DJs instead of bands, and once people started having less experience with live music, the stars that were being created by the record company changed. And instead of being people who had a knowledge base of 50 to a couple hundred songs, there were people who knew a few songs that had a voice that the record companies thought were okay. Also, A&R departments changed. They went from being people who were really music people, like Clive Davis was, who would pick a song and run around Arista and play the same song for everybody and say, what do you think of this for Whitney? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? It went from that type of musical person, uh, or even Barry Gordy, who had his quality control board and got the opinion of all these musical people. It went from that to being business stages that were wanted to be in the music business. And all those factors changed how people experienced music. Right. I definitely agree with that. And speaking of Motown, you mentioned Asher and Simpson. They co-wrote Y'all That I Need to Get Back for Marvin Gaye, Tim and the other hits. 
off of Motown. What is it that you think is about the Motown songbook that we're still going to hear those songs 50 years from now? Okay, I have a couple thoughts about that. First, let me talk about Asher and the Simpsons for a minute. Sadly, Nick passed away. What what a nice guy Nick was. Valerie is a brilliant musician. Working with her is like such an honor. And, and I've been working with her every week for the past 20 years. I play at her club. And I did get to tour with them, and we did some gigs together. I worked as their musical director. Now, that that's a good example of exactly what I'm saying. Valerie came to the table, not just with the popular music in her mind, but also with the experience of having played in church, which is where her and Nick met. Um, Valerie is an incredible musician. She sits down at the piano and plays one chord, and you're like, I want her to play for me. She's an amazing musician. Uh, so the songs they wrote uh, came out of a knowledge base that was very broad. Now, Nick wrote the words to I'm Every Woman, not Valerie. Uh, Nick wrote a lot of those words, and Valerie wrote a lot of the music. Uh, but um, an amazing duo. They wrote so many hits people don't even know about. They wrote, their first hit was Let's Go Get Stoned for Ray Charles. They wrote uh, I'm Every Woman. They wrote Clouds for Shaka. They wrote um, a lot of the songs on that Tammy Terrell, Marvin Gaye album. And Valerie and Nick did something that Burt Bacharach also does. And that's right, things that are are not perfectly symmetrical. Like if you sit down and learn Valerie's song, they're not easy to learn because they're not simple. Like Reach Out and Touch, the Diana Ross song. That's not an easy song just to pick up. It's got a lot of little quirks and twists that you don't expect, but the things that you don't expect are what make it attractive. Same with Burt Bacharach's song, which Luther fell in love with. Mm, yeah, because I did not know until maybe four or five years after I heard it that House is Not a Home was originally done by Dionne Ward. That just showed how yes. good Luther's cover was. Yes. Now, I'm not a big fan of covers. I usually find the original, especially like Stevie Wonder covers, usually I like the original better, but Luther was able to do covers of songs that were just gorgeous. And also, I mean, he assembled a great team, but Nat Adderley is a great piano player. Yogi Horton played drums on a lot of that early stuff. Yogi was initially on that gig I did with Teddy Riley. Luther had a great band. He had Cindy Mizell and Lisa Fisher singing backgrounds. And, you know, and the other thing people don't know about Luther is, check this out and go back and tell me what you think. Luther was a huge Aretha Franklin fan. He was the head of her fan club. And if you listen to Luther, he sings straight up Aretha style. Like he has a smoother voice, but his whole way of approaching things is very Aretha. Wow. And Lisa Fisher, for those of you that don't know, she had a big hit herself in 1991 with How Can I Eat the Pain, which is later sampled by 3-6 Mafia. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, did Cindy Mizell perform in this group in the early 80s called Attitude? I'm not sure. Cindy and I are good friends. Now, Cindy and Lisa toured with the Stones and they also toured with Steely Dan, but until Luther passed, they were Luther's background singers. Okay. And yeah. what, what a great team. Yeah. I was curious because there was this group called Attitude that was out in the early 80s. They were signed to Atlantic. They had this record called If You Could Read My Mind, which was a big regional record in Dallas. The K-104, the R&B station mm -hmm. out of Dallas, would play on a regular basis. And that album, I believe, was co-produced by David Frank from the system. Yeah, that's very possible. I'll ask Cindy about it. Now, Cindy got her start with the Sugar Hill gang. Sugar Hill Records with Sylvia Robinson. Yeah, I love Cindy. She's, she's a great person, and I've used her on recording. Great singer. There's a whole, like, New York clique of people that intermingle and gig with each other. And 
Sydney and Lisa are all in that gang. They rose up above above that level and got to Luther and did really well with Luther. Right. And then another person who was very well known in the 80s around the same time, Luther, he was on the second tier, but had the same quality of music as Luther, Freddie Jackson. So big credit goes up to Paul Lawrence and everything that he was doing over at Hush Productions with Melba Moore, Lilo Thomas, Melissa Morgan, and all of those that, that came out of there. All right. So, so I've worked with Freddie. I know Freddie very well. Freddie is first hits were written by Barry Eastman. Barry's a great producer, great keyboard player, great pianist, and about the most gentlemanly, nice guy you could ever meet in your life. Barry was the musical director when I toured with Anita Baker. I played second keyboards and Barry was MD. And we go back. Barry and I have worked together with Tony Terry and with Freddie Jackson. Hush Productions, my second musical director job. My first musical director job was with Joyce Sims. And my second musical director job was with a singer named Elise Simmons, who was on Hush Productions, and her producer was a guy named Donald D. And there was some issues, like Donald kept bouncing checks, and when I left Elise Simmons' band, they were going to Jamaica, and I'm like, I'm not leaving the country with this guy. He owed me so much money. I was like, Donald, this is my last concert with you. you got to bring me cash. And he's like, don't worry, you can trust me, Alex. I'm like, Donald, you've been working with me for months. My name is Alec, and I can't trust you. Bounce checks on me. Bring me cash, or I'm not going on stage. So I got to this concert. It was with the Force MD in New Jersey, and Donald didn't have money for me. It was my last gig with him, and I was so terrified but i said i'm not going on and i sat there everyone was mad at me i held up the concert for an hour till he went and begged the promoter and got me cash and then i, I got paid and i did my last gig with, with the lease that's the one thing people don't play about don't play with my money especially if you've been writing bad checks i would have been like you too i'm not going on unless you give me my money and it's funny that you mentioned tony terry because i had a chance to interview him years ago on my radio show he was telling me that for the with you video columbia wouldn't pony up any money for the video and he said Anita Baker put up the money for it. Let me tell you something. Tony Terry is one of the most tasteful singers I have ever heard. Like, when I did that gig with Barry Eastman and Tony, he sang the melody. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about riffing. It wasn't about listen to how great I am. He sang the song. And it's just the quality of his voice and his no choice. and just He's a great singer. Right. Definitely a great singer. Very underrated. Forever Yours, Lovey Dovey, Everlasting Love. Great collection. Now, you worked with the late, great Phyllis Hyman. Now, was it difficult for her night in, night out to dial back vocally because of how strong and pure of a vocalist she was? Phyllis liked things in a very specific way. Like, she would be singing, and if the band came up above a level she was comfortable with, she would put her hand down, and it would be like... There wasn't a question of, like, when you got quiet. You just got quiet. You know, she was very, uh, very clear about what she wanted. And over the years, Phyllis had a hard time with a lot of people. She would argue with people. But for some reason, she and I never had a single moment of tension between us. We just got along always. Phyllis Simon, definitely one of my favorite female vocalists. I mean, she was doing jingles like they were full-on soul records. And you just knew that when she had the right songs, vocally, she was no match. Yeah, she was a powerhouse. She could, like, turbocharge her voice, and all of a sudden she would go from, like, gentle to this powerful sound. Like, she had a way of ratcheting it up that was 
very unique. Like, her cover of Bet You By Golly Wow, one of the best covers I've heard on any artist. Yeah, uh, Norman Connors produced that. It was a beautiful, beautiful song. And, and she did that every night that I was with mm-hmm. her. Right. And we got to mention everything that was come out of Philadelphia with Philadelphia International with Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, Linda Creed, and Tom Bell, all of those classics. Yeah. I met Gamble and Huff at Phyllis's Memorial was the first time I met them. They're at that Motown level of, of importance in history. And you mentioned your young listeners. I believe it's important that you know your music history. You know, go back and learn about these writers and these artists. It's interesting. People say history is boring. History is the most interesting thing. Right, because I feel it's important that we still have the history because if there's no one around to tell it, you're not going to know what came before you because I was looking at a clip yesterday of the cast of the Broadway play Ain't Too Power of the Bag by The Temptations and they were doing My Girl and how everyone in the audience was singing along and when my wife and I went to go see the Motown musical a few years ago in Salt Lake City I ran outside into Lamont Dozier of Holland Dozier Holland and just thinking to myself this man is responsible for writing some of the biggest hits in not only R&B history but pop history and it's funny how generations from now will still be singing My Girl or any song out of the Motown songbook that just well, goes you know, to show how great songwriting is yes and that also in my mind goes back to what I said earlier, those writers of that era came out of the 40s and 50s. What they heard growing up were like the songs that were the jazz standards in the 40s, those all came out of Broadway. And then in the 50s, the doo-wop and all those great singers. So Dozier and Holland and Nick and Val, all the Philadelphia writers, they all grew up listening to classic music and getting a bass in really well-written songs. And I also think the Stax writers had a good base in songwriting, too. You know, Isaac Hayes and his partner, Dave Porter, wrote a lot of big hit on Stax. Stax was a little bit funkier in their musical interpretation, while Motown was more crisp, clean, smooth, easy listening pop. But both records from those companies had pop success. Yes. Well, Stax kind of had that Memphis, you know, it was a little more Southern than, than Motown. And also, you got to look at Barry Gordy's brilliance as a businessman. He knew that white audiences were spending money on black records. Now, before that time period, records that came from black artists were called race records. The name R&B didn't exist, or Motown or didn't exist. And Barry Gordy knew that getting black artists to white audiences was a way to have larger success. So he did a thing, like, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a TV show with the Supremes and the Temptations that was called TCB. It was really a ploy for selling to white audiences a lot of that stuff that Barry Gordy did and that also at that time a lot of the record companies were doing things to try and reach white audiences like for example if you listen to Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughan to their early jazz stuff it's like a jazz quartet or a jazz trio or a big band like Ella's early stuff and then later, when you listen to Ellis Swings Lightly with Nelson and those things, they start adding strings. They did that to Ray Charles, too. They start adding strings. And like with Ray Charles, they added these very white-sounding background singers in an attempt to reach a white audience to sell more records. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know this until I saw Robert Townsend's documentary on the making of the five heartbeats, that originally he wanted to use David Ruffin and Eddie Kendrick from the temp as technical advisors.
advisors. But the studio said no because people would assume when they saw the movie that it was about them, Motown, and Barry Gordy. So they couldn't use David and Eddie because they didn't want to get sued. So Robert Townsend ended up going with the Dells. And when he was talking with them about their experiences in the business, they mentioned how for the album cover for Oh What a Night, they didn't have their faces. And they were saying how we had to do that in order to get market to the pop audience because like you said earlier at this time labels had to do discreet ways to take R&B records by black artists and cross them over to the pop side and that was one of the ways of them doing it was to not put the artist face on the album cover yeah it's a double-edged sword in a way because I mean to be very frank about it, racism wasn't any less that so while people were enjoying black music they weren't acknowledging it as fully black I don't know if I'm being clear about that. So what you said about them hiding that, you know, was true. That was a financial decision, not a social decision, you know. But if the United States was to be honest about it, our whole culture is not just one color. It's this mix. Yeah, I was saying it's a mix of pretty much everything because, you know, a lot of the white kids growing up was listening to Motown, listening to sax. And then if you go even further up into the 70s and 80s, I know for Bobby Caldwell and Tina Marie, they did the same strategy because they felt that black audience wouldn't love their music if they found out that they were white and were making R&B records. Yeah, well, you know, there's something to what you just said, and I don't have a lot of deep knowledge about black radio, but I do remember somebody from one of the record companies, this is years and years ago, talking about how black radio would drop black artists as soon as they crossed over into pop. And I always thought, wow. So sometimes, like an artist like uh, Whitney or Michael Jackson, when their songs would cross over, the point this person made, and I don't know how true it is, because I only heard it this one time from this record executive, but about how there was some, I guess, residual bad feeling about black radio sharing black artists with wider audiences. Yeah, because I had a chance to interview Narada Michael Walden, and we were talking about the backlash that Whitney had had from the R&B audience because her albums were pretty much catered to the pop audience. And when she went to the Soul Train Music Awards, and I believe it was 89, when she was nominated for an award, the audience was born because they felt her music wasn't appealing to us. And I think because of that backlash, that was why Clive went and got L.A. and Babyface to produce her I'm Your Baby Tonight album. Interesting. That makes sense to me. I mean, Michael Walden produced brilliant pop stuff for her. And I'm Your Baby Tonight, I also had mixed feelings about that because Whitney got to write on that album. Like, My Name Is Not Susan was the song. Maybe there was one other song. And she had gotten powerful enough that she could demand to write on an album. This is my opinion. But she wasn't really a strong writer. Like, I'm Your Baby Tonight was a strong song, and Babyface is genius. And that album did well because of Babyface, not because of Whitney's writing. Right, because you got to look at the top. L.A. and Babyface was white hot with what they were doing with Karen White, Pebbles, The Deal, The Boys. They, along with Teddy Riley and production duo out of Minneapolis, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they ran the market of urban radio back in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, there was a time where L.A. and Babyface had more records on the top 100 than any other writers in history. Definitely that. So what are your thoughts on Jam and Lewis as songwriters and producers and that they were able to bring out the best of any artists that they worked with from the SOS band, 
Janet Jackson, Alexander O'Neill, to New Edition. I love Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I learned a lot from listening to them. They're great, great producers and great songwriters. One of my favorite albums of theirs is Control. What a genius album. I mean, they took Janet, who had limited vocal ability, and made her into a star, you know? I mean, the choreography thing that Paula Abdul did also helped her, but musically, that was brilliant. Let's Wait a While. What a gorgeous song, you know? I love what they did with Sherelle, with Home. That's a beautiful song. And uh, the Alexander O'Neill fake and all that stuff. They, they did great, great stuff. It was definitely a Minnesota sound, you know? Yeah, definitely the Minneapolis sound. And my favorite album that they produced for me was the Heartbreak album from New Edition. Because if you look at New Edition prior to them making up with Jenna Lewis, they were kind of floundering because Bobby had just got voted out. Don't Be Cruel hadn't came out yet and lost him to a superstar. They were in limbo, and then they brought in Johnny Gill into the group, and I think by them working with Alexander O'Neill kind of gave them a template on how to bring Johnny into the fold when Ralph was the primary vocalist, and what you got was a masterpiece that pretty much said, hey, we're not a young kitty group that was singing Candy Girl from five years earlier. We're now right. grown adult men. Yes, yeah. I mean, the market kind of fluctuates up and down in terms of its Kitty groupness and then it's adultness. If you kind of look over a longer period of time, it's like a wave. It goes up and down. Which was amazing to see how the Jackson 5 just exploded in the 70s because, 60s and 70s, because it was really the first time where you had a group of kids that were playing instruments, viable, had a young, fresh face that was being marketed to the pop and R&B audience. And then from that, we got New Edition, we got New Kids on the Block, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, so on and so forth. So the Jacksons pretty much set the stage for how modern-day boys bands were to be mass-marketed. I agree. Now, when the ABC album came out, I was in grade school in South Jamaica, Queens, in a 80% black neighborhood. And the day that album came out, I remember the day being in the playground and everyone was talking about it. It was like a national holiday. I made my mom take me on the subway into South Jamaica to go to EJ Corvettes and buy that album so that I had it that day. Like, it was a big deal when that album came out. It's very different when albums come out now. They don't have the celebrity. That album was a big deal. What Motown did back then was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And nobody could have predicted that Michael would be the worldwide superstar that he would turn into. And I feel as a music head, for me, the Better Malka album was Off the Wall. Because I feel Off the Wall was more of a true traditional R&B album with a slight pop appeal. You had... Quincy Jones, you had Rod Tipperton, Greg Fillingame, Stevie Wonder, and a whole bunch of other artists that were working on the album, while Thriller, to me, it was a straight-up pop album, because I was looking at this documentary on the making of Off the Wall, and when he found out that Off the Wall was just regulated to being nominated for Best R&B Album for Thriller, he said, that's all right, I'm going to make an album that's going to cross over across the board, regardless of the format. I mean, Beat It got played on rock radio. He broke the color barrier at MTV, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I had heard or read somewhere in a magazine that back during that time, two out of three households had a copy of the Thriller album. That's how big that album was. That was a giant album. You know, I got to say a couple things about it. First, I'm with you, Off the Wall. I love that album. 
I mean, even if you put Michael aside for a second, just the beauty of the recording itself and the writing and the playing. Great Steeler games. I got to meet him and talk with him at uh, Ashbury and Simpson Sugar Bar. He's a big hero of mine. And he was kind of a Stevie Wonder. His keyboard style was very influenced by Stevie. And Greg, I think, musical directed the Control Tour, if I remember right. And I got to say something about Quincy, too, that people don't know. Well, we were talking about knowing your history. Quincy Jones used to arrange for Count Basie. He wrote some of him and Neil Hefty wrote some of those classic Count Basie arrangements. So when you listen to Off the Wall, one of the skills Quincy has that I find fascinating and just brilliant is Quincy can have a lot of stuff going on at one time and nothing gets in the way of anything else. So you can listen to those songs on Off the Wall and there's two guitar tracks and horns and strings and percussion and there's all this stuff going on and nothing gets in the way. It still sounds spacious. Now, I've met Quincy three times now. The last time he came, he was at Ashford and Simpson Sugar Bar and he was so nice to me. When I got off stage, he called me to his table and he put both his arms around my arms and he said, who are you? And I said, uh, my name's Alex Shantis. He goes, Spell it for me. So I spelled my name. And he goes, spell it again. And I spelled it. And he goes, you're a great keyboard player. I was like, oh, my God, thank you. I was I was in heaven. But he was so nice to me. And right. he's such a hero of mine. Right. And the one thing that I give Quincy for, credit for, for being an established producer, music industry tastemaker, was that he embraced rap. He didn't shun his nose at it because when he put out the Back on the Block album, he had Cool Mo D, Big Daddy Kane, Ice-T, a lot of the earlier rappers at the time, and he was having him do stuff with Ella Fitzgerald, and it was like the bridging of the old and the new. He didn't say, ah, rap is mess. It was like, no, this is coming. I'm going to right. embrace it, and I'm going to be accepting of You're absolutely right. You know, uh, on the dude, the song, the dude, you know, the rap on that, that kind of low voice, hey, everybody in the neighborhood, that's Michael Jackson. Wow. Patty Austin told me that. I did not know that, that Michael yeah. was on the rap Yeah, for it's not, it dude. doesn't say it on the record. Now, the one group that I was really impressed with, where people looked at him as a flash in the pan, but still, three decades later, they're still standing, still torn, was New Kids on the Block, because they were put together by Marie Starr who discovered New Edition four years prior to putting New Kids together and they were originally signed to Columbia R&B division and when their first album tanked they were about to get dropped so they convinced Columbia to do a second album which can't hang it tough Please Don't Go Girl was originally marketed to just R&B radio only and they did a video that was only sent to BET because that was where Marie Starr's connections were so a pop station out of Florida started playing it and then that's when Columbia started getting the wind that, hey, you got a hit. That's when the pop exposure started. MTV and all the team magazines came knocking. That's when they said, hey, forget being an R&B act. You guys are solely a pop group. And new kids were more urban than I think people wanted to give them credit. I don't have as much knowledge about them as you do. I just got to kind of go along with you on that. It's one of those times. At that point in time, I was doing more smooth jazz acts. 
So that was more like your Najee's, your Stanley Jordan's for play that whole arena? Yes. Najee's a buddy of mine. We worked together. We toured together. And I wrote one of the songs on his Just Illusion album. We co-wrote one of those songs. Najee's from Queens, too. Mm, yeah, because I remember Bet You Don't Know getting a lot of airplay on BT because there was this video show called Soft Notes that used to play, like, smooth, easy listening music. And that song was a staple. And also, on that same album, he covered Sweet Love by Anita Baker. And Rapture, that album, one of my top albums of all time, and an album that everyone should hear. So, aside from being a really nice guy, I mean, a nice as a friend, care about him a lot, I also got to say, he's one of those people that gave me some business advice that I wish I had listened to. Back somewhere in the, in the 90s, he said to me, get a publicist. He said, it'll change your whole life. He had gotten a publicist, and his publicist really built his business structure, and he did so well with that. He's a great player. He went to Eastman School of Music, and he's a trained player. He really can play. I mean, I can't say enough about Najee. So another female musician that gets credit for her production or her instrumentation, Patrice Russian. I mean, her stuff, good, funky. To me, Patrice Russian was kind of like Herbie Hancock, like very similar playing style. If you listen to Patrice solo, there's a lot of Herbie in her playing. You know, people think of her as just forget-me-nots because that's what everybody knows. But her jazz playing is very influenced by Herbie Hancock. Now, Herbie Hancock is another musician that I was surprised that embraced hip-hop earlier on because Rocket, it was pretty much a hip-hop record and it got airplay on R&B radio. It was winning big on the MTV Video Music Awards that year and it was just amazing to see him say, I'm going to embrace this new genre and incorporate it into what I'm already doing. Yeah, his view was kind of in the same spirit as what you described about Quincy. Like, this is where the culture is going. I'll go there. Right. And then Paul Hardcastle out of England adopted that mantra. He had 19, which was a cross-Atlantic hit here in America and his native UK. But his biggest hit in the U.S. was Rainforest. And over in the U.K., he put out this track called The Wizard, which was used as the theme for, I believe, five to six years for the long-running BBC music show, Top of the Pop. You know, I want to say something about Rocket, too. If you look back up until maybe the early 90s, about every five to ten years, there would be one instrumental hit on the radio. Pop culture had room for one hit, like Rocket was one of the last ones. If you go back before that, you can look at Billy Preston's Space Race or Out of Space, and, you know, there's a whole line of instrumental hits that made it onto the radio, but not a lot of them. Mm-mm. Like Herb Alfred's Rise, John Hammer's right. for Miami Vice, Shaft theme, Axel F by Harold Faltermeyer from Beverly Hills yeah. Pop. Yeah, you are exactly right. Like, Jan was a big hero of mine for a while, too, and I learned a lot of his keyboard playing, and I got to see him play live a few times. Amazing player. To me, as a keyboard player, I mean, later on, I got it to Herbie Hancock more, but at that point in my young keyboard days, it was Jan Hammer, George Duke, and Chick Corea were my three heroes. Now, George Duke, some of his stuff, to me, sounded very similar to 
parliament, and I didn't notice until reading Sheila E.'s book that George Duke kind of brought her in to get her feet wet in the business before she ended up linking up and joining Prince. You're absolutely right. If you listen to George's early albums, Don't Let Go, and those albums, very influenced by Parliament. But also, you got to look at, he played with Frank Zappa, too, which also influenced him in terms of having kind of a, a sense of humor about what he was doing. And I have to say, I got to know George a little bit. The first time I was on the same bill with him was in Detroit. We were playing at, I think it's Shane, and Phyllis, we were playing warm-up for George, and George at that point had Rochelle Farrell and Will Downing singing with him. It was one of the Jazz Explosion tours. And later on, I got to tour with Will Downing, and I also got to do concerts with Rochelle Farrell. But at that point, I was just meeting George. Now, I had met him when I was 17, and now here I am in my uh, late 30s on the same bill with him, and it was like a great experience for me. And then I got to work with him a few more times. I got to do the D.C. Jazz Festival when I was with Patty Austin and hang out with him and Stanley Clark. And it's like a dream for me, you know, having had him as my idol growing up and then getting to know him as a peer. And then on George's last week here with us, I went with Jerry Brown, the drummer, who did Stevie Wonder's Hotter Than July tour. And Jerry was on Chick Corea's Music Magic album. And Jerry also played on Stanley Clark's School Days album. Jerry and I became friends. And we went to see George and Stanley play because Jerry had grown up with Stanley Clark at the Blue Note in New York. And George didn't say anything. But the next week he passed away. And we didn't know, I didn't even know it that he was very ill. Man. Yeah, because I first heard of George Duke when I would watch Soul Train because he did the theme for TSOP 87. And that goes back to Gamble and Huff. There was a story that Gamble tells that they wanted to name that Soul Train, but because Don Cornelius was very protective of the Soul Train name that he then licensed it out and that's why they named it TSOP. Then Don later came out and said in a VH1 special that he regretted not giving Gamble and Huff the Soul Train name for the song even though it was the theme for the show. Hmm, I didn't know that. You know, and just for your younger listeners out there, uh, what we were talking about knowing your history, George Duke, before he was doing R&B and jazz rock fusion, he was playing keyboards for Cannibal Latterly. Wow. So he had his, you know, his basis in playing jazz. And George Duke, I think, studied at Juilliard, and he was classically trained, and he wrote an opera that was never performed. Yeah, he's a, he's a huge hero of mine. What are your thoughts on Entume? Entume, you know, it's funny because there was one drum beat that Entume used that everyone would say, oh, yeah, I want the Entume that beat. But I never got to work with Entume. He did Juicy Fruit, right? Juicy Fruit, which laid a biggie sample for Juicy. Ah. And that became a big hit, and then he did You, Me, and He, which was later sampled by the rapper Cameron for an album cut off of the album Come Home With Me. And I would be remiss, we talked about Motown and Stack, but we can't talk about 60s, 70s soul music and not talk about the studio that is often overlooked by the mainstream audience, but is known by music lovers, and that is Fame Studios out of Muscle Shows, Alabama. Yeah, well, you know... I mean, if you look back on history, kind of the way you're doing, there's Muscle Shoals, there's Stacks, 
there's Hitsville, and each one of them has a place in history. Right, definitely a unique place, and then all the little labels independently that were out during the time back in the 60s and 70s, because I didn't know this until there was a PBS special on this regional record label out of Miami called Deep City Records that Betty Wright cut her first record on them when she was 14. I didn't know that. May she rest in peace. And I grew up in North Carolina, so a lot of her music catalog was very big because of the Southern Soul movement with her, Millie Jackson, Clarence Carter, Johnny Taylor, Lil Milton. I grew up listening to that stuff because that would be played at Family Cookout and whatnot. And then you mentioned Will Downing. This cover of I Try, which was originally done by Angela Bofield, Magnifique. Yeah. First thing I got to say is Will is a lovely person. And I was very honored. I did a jazz explosion tour with, it was him and Patty Austin and Gerald Albright. And we did, I think, 28 cities in 30 days or something like that. That was an insane amount of work. But what an honor and what a great singer. Right. And you mentioned Patty Austin. Of course, she had big hits before she did Baby Come to Me with James Ingram. And James, who has since passed away, may he rest in peace. I didn't know until maybe two or three years ago that he and Philip Ingram from the group Switch were brothers. I didn't know that. I knew yeah. she was Quincy's, I think, his goddaughter. Yeah, so I didn't know that James Ingram's brother was in Switch. And, of course, Switch, two of the brothers from the DeBarge family, were in Switch. And then the other mm. siblings later went on to form DeBarge, had hits such as I Like It, All This Love, Rhythm of the Night from the Last Dragon soundtrack. And I want to leave you out on this question here. With music changing over time, we're going from cassette, vinyl, CD, to everything being streamed. Do you think that the artists and the musicians now are more well-off financially and able to capitalize more, or or they're still kind of operating in the old way of things because that was the way for so long and digital came and everybody's still kind of struggling to catch up in the gap? It's a very important question. Um, so when streaming came into popularity, the laws, the copyright laws, did not catch up to what was happening fast enough. And it has financially devastated the field of songwriting. Just to give you an example, not an R&B example, but you know the song Living on a Prayer? Yes. Bon Jovi. So the guy who wrote it is a guy named Desmond Child. I was fortunate to play at Lincoln Center with him last year, and the guy has written more hit songs than anybody I've ever met. Uh, he wrote Living La Vida Loca and Dude Looks Like a Lady, and he's written so many rock hits. He's a, an amazing writer. But he wrote Living on a Prayer. Now, just to kind of give you an example, I co-wrote a song with Jody Watley. It was a nothing hit. It got up to 22 on the charts. For one week on and off the charts, I owned a quarter of the song. My first paycheck from ASCAP for that song was $17,000 for one quarter. Now, let me tell you what Desmond Child told me. His check two years ago from Spotify, he said that year he got 296 million hit on Living on a Prayer. His check from Spotify was $6,000. That doesn't add up. Yeah, so that's because the laws of paying royalties for digital transmission, they didn't catch up fast enough. So the people that made the money are the Spotify's, the Pandora's, and the people that got really screwed are the songwriters. Yeah, that doesn't end up. You got 292 million hits, and you only get a check for 6K. And everybody, you can see why acts such as Prince, Stevie, Marvin, the list goes on and on with fighting over creative control and also getting a bigger share 
of the revenue because publishing is key. Keep your publishing. Don't sign it away. And if you're able to write a good Christmas record that gets played year after year, that is like money in the bank. That's why Mariah Carey did that Christmas record. Everybody does Christmas records. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I had a chance to interview Courtney Anderson, one half of the podcast duo, I'm going to let you finish. He was telling me that he was working at Columbia Records during the time when the Christmas album came out. He said it was in between first regular two albums, and they had no idea that the Christmas record would still be as big as it is today. And also, the late George Michael, Last Christmas from Wham! is starting to become that new Christmas classic every year where it gets played and that's why like I said if you can write a good Christmas record and it gets played every year it's like the gift that keeps on giving and I think it's a good thing now because of the internet because you have younger artists who are coming into the industry now being more aware of how the industry works as far as finances point structures royalty intellectual property P&D and just being more business savvy now you know, so I studied music all my life, and the word money was never mentioned. But now, all the music schools have music business classes as part of the curriculum. So the whole knowledge of that has changed. Mm-hmm. Definitely has changed. you got to know the business first before you can go out and do the show. Now, Alex, do you have any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude this interview? Oh, gosh. I want to thank Mark Nathan, who you interviewed a little while back, for posting the interview with you, because that's how I found you. My kids, I raised three kids myself. I love my kids. And also, one person who we didn't get to mention earlier was a singer named Allison Williams, who I just want to give a shout-out to. Allison and I worked together for many, many years, and Allison was another one of those group of singers that was signed to Atlantic back at that same time we were talking about a little while back. There was a, a woman at Atlantic named Sylvia Roan who signed a lot of singers to Atlantic. Oh, I know who Sylvia Roan is. She signed Troop. She signed LaVert to Atlantic and Allison Williams. Uh, she put out the record My Love is So Raw with rapper Nikki D, correct? I think so. Her big hit was Just Call My Name. Yeah, that's that same one, My Love is So Raw, yeah. that was on Def Jam. One of my favorite records, I remember being a little kid watching BT Video Soul and seeing those two videos in heavy rotation. Underrated vocalist, powerhouse boy. And I just felt yeah. with her being on Def Jam, it was a hand scratcher because, you know, Def Jam was a rap-oriented label. Now that everything is online and virtual, Valerie Simpson has been having her Sugar Bar open mic night virtually. Uh, and you can find that on Facebook, Ashford and Simpson Sugar Bar. And Allison hosted it last week, and Tony Terry sang. And he was amazing and Allison was amazing. So my last shout-out is just to Ashford and Simpson Sugar Bar. If anyone wants to tune in on Thursday nights, they have a live feed. All right, definitely be on the look for that Thursday night. Get your nice clothes on. Put your two-step on with you and your significant other and dance the night away. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Interview with Mr. Alec Chances, music educator, musician, music extraordinaire. Alec, thank you so very much for doing this interview with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it a lot.